Ephesians chapter 6, let's begin reading this morning in verse 5. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Recently I ran across a list of occupational hymns. Here's a list of praise songs to God that could be sung by people occupying various lines of work. For example, builders might sing, How Firm a Foundation. Dentists hum, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Baseball players could sing, Seek Ye First. Electricians might croon, Send the Light. Fishermen sing, Shall We Gather at the River. Astronauts might like the song, Nearer My God to Thee. Bakers are heard singing, I need thee every hour. News reporters pass it on. IRS agents, all to thee I owe. Politicians standing on the promises. Optometrists like to sing, Open My Eyes. Purchasing agents, Sweet By and By. Stonecutters, Rock of Ages. Tailors want to sing, Holy, holy, holy. Weathermen favor showers of blessings. And of course, security guards like singing, Silent Night. My point is, is that no matter what type of work you do or job you hold, as a Christian, you've been called to take care of business in a way that glorifies God. In God's eyes, there's not much difference between a hymn and hard work. Certainly, a definite mark of spiritual maturity is the ability to turn our work into worship. This is a Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel that has some real application for your Monday morning at your place of employment. The first three chapters of Ephesians are spiritual in nature. They're all about how we see ourselves. In Christ, we have a new identity. We're chosen and forgiven and accepted We're God's kids now. His poema, his work of art. We're now somebody special in Christ. Whereas the first three chapters are spiritual, the last three chapters are intensely practical. For how we see ourselves will impact how we live our lives. You see, the changes that Jesus works in us should influence the relationships we carry on with the people around us. Our marriage our family, even our life at work. Whether you're a veterinarian or a librarian, a mortician or an electrician, a drummer or a plumber, an engineer or a cashier, a truck driver or a deep sea diver, a teacher or a preacher, a director or an inspector, a baker or a furniture maker, whatever your line of work, 
your attitude towards your job is vital to God. Remember, God created work. Labor is not a temporary excursion from the eternal design. It's not a necessary evil, a time filler with no ultimate purpose. No, before man sinned, he was given meaningful work. Specifically, Adam and Eve were assigned the task of tending the garden. God created man with a disposition for labor. Work is our God-sanctioned duty. In fact, the Bible teaches that if a person is unwilling to work, he or she shouldn't eat. Work is the will of God. You see, many Christians make the mistake of dividing life into secular and sacred. We assume that God cares about spiritual matters, sacred matters, like Bible study, and church, and prayer, whereas the secular concerns like finances and family and vocation are issues that He leaves up to us. We figure that God cares about the spiritual side of life, but not about the secular facets of life. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. For all of life is important to God. He is as concerned with how we do business as He is with how we pray. He cares as much about our work as our worship. To God, there is no such thing as secular and spiritual. Every issue in my life is spiritual, a spiritual issue. So, what's your attitude towards your job? Once there was an instructor at a company first aid class, a safety seminar, who opened the seminar by asking the employees, what's the first thing you'd do if you found out you had rabies? Well, without the slightest hesitation, one of the workers answered, bite my supervisor. <laughs> well, if that would have been your attitude, you got a bad attitude. Years ago, when I was working in the warehouse, Johnny Paycheck sang a song. It sort of became an anthem for the working class. Here's the lyrics. Foreman, he's a regular dog. The line boss, he's a fool. Got a brand new flat top haircut. Man, he thinks he's cool. One of these days, I'm going to blow my top. That sucker, he's going to pay. Man, I can't wait to see their faces when I get the nerve to say. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Take this job and shove it. Now, some of you remember that song, don't you? Some of you sang that song, don't you? Some of you are singing that song right now, aren't you? Man, Johnny was biding his time, longing for that day when he could walk into the boss's office and tell him he's done. I guess he had a crass way of phrasing it. But if we're honest, that's how some of us feel about our job even now. Our attitude stinks. Our performance has gotten a little shoddy. Over time, we've been guilty of a little subtle insubordination. Well, quite frankly, God isn't pleased. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Holy Spirit teaches us how that we can correct our attitude, how that we can infuse meaning and value in whatever we do during the day, that we can turn our business into blessing. In fact, God wants us to change our tune from take this job and shove it to take this job and love it. He wants every Christian to view his work as worship.
Now remember, Paul was writing to the Christians at Ephesus, a Roman colony. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, excluding Charlton Heston. That's about half the population. All across the empire, these bond servants, as Paul calls them, or slaves, made up the largest percentage of the workforce. Many of the first believers came from this group of slaves and thought that as a Christian they should rise up and rebel. But Paul says no. If they did their job faithfully, they could change society by their godly witness. Now today, none of us are slaves. Although some of you might feel like your job is treating you like one. But Paul's instructions apply equally well to employees. For we are all servants of the company that employs us. This morning, I want us to look at our job performance and test how much we really understand our Christianity. We're going to look at the who, the how, and the why of our work. Who do we work for? Hey, the answer might just surprise you. How should we do our work? our attitude, and beyond just pocketing a paycheck, just feeding our family, why should we care about our work? Hey, answer these questions correctly, and you'll be well on your way to turning your work into worship. Well, first and most importantly, understand the who. For whom do we work? Paul tells us in verse 3, Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. And then again in verse 6, not as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. And then once more, verse 7, as to the Lord. The answer is Jesus. I'll bet you thought that you worked for Greasy Wrench Automotive, or Bullwinkle and Associates, or Attaboy Burgers. But in God's eyes, you work for Jesus. Perhaps you've had difficulty attaching significance to what you do. You think your work carries no weight. All you do is shuffle papers or drive nails or clean dishes. You figure, hey, if I stay at home tomorrow, what's the big deal? It's not going to matter. The world will go on without me. The American economy will somehow survive. I understand how you feel. Every job has its moments of despair. But what makes your work important is not what you do, it's who you serve. Your boss is not the flat top line boss or the foreman who thinks he's cool. As a Christian, your real boss is Jesus. As Paul said to the Colossians, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. According to Paul, when our supervisor gives us a task, we need to undertake it with the same energy, the same enthusiasm, as if it were a direct command from our Lord Jesus. That is, with a few exceptions. First, never follow an order that's immoral or unbiblical. When a boss's commands conflict with God's command, then we need to be obedient to God. Second, this doesn't mean that a laborer loses his rights on the job site. There's nothing wrong with filing a legitimate grievance when you're treated unfairly. And third, this doesn't mean that you're locked into a penny-paying, dead-end, frustration-filled job for life just because your boss says they can't get along without you. No, there's nothing wrong with you seeking a better job. But what this does mean is that whatever job God has given you at this time, while you're there, 
you need to work it as if you were directly working unto him. You need to ask yourself, is the Lord Jesus going to be glorified by the quality of the project that I'm presenting in the morning? Does this truly represent my best efforts? Would I have taken greater pains? Would I have avoided some shortcuts if I had known that what I was doing was being done for Jesus himself? Hey, I have no doubt that we'd all be more careful, more conscientious, more consistent, even more cheerful in our work if we realized that our boss was not the guy who signs our paycheck, but our Lord Jesus Christ. Once three stonemasons were working on a cathedral. Each man was asked what he was doing. The first worker responded, I'm laying bricks. The second fellow said, I'm toiling for a living. The third man cast his eyes toward heaven and answered, I'm building a place where people can worship God. Only one laborer saw the big picture. Only one saw the true significance of, of what his job was accomplishing. You see, if all that matters to you on your job is a paycheck, then you've missed the point. Your job is a showcase where you can display your devotion to God in a practical way for all to see. We're told, be obedient in sincerity of heart as to Christ. As I mentioned earlier, I believe one of the marks of genuine spiritual maturity is the ability to turn a wearisome act into an act of heartfelt worship. Can you transform the boring into a time of adoring? The petty into praise, hard work into hosannas. If you're a student, is your love for Jesus strong enough to see your homework assignment as an opportunity to bring glory to your Lord and Savior? We've all been taught that lifting hands and bowing knees and singing songs are acts of worship. But by adding the right attitude, you can transform the filling out of a report or the sweeping of a warehouse or a divisional meeting you can transform those things into an act of worship as well. We get up on Sunday morning and we go to church to worship, but God wants us to get up on Monday morning and go to work to worship. Martin Luther once said, a dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God. It reminds me of the 17th century monk, a simple man. He, he was called Brother Lawrence, and he wrote a book entitled Practicing the Presence of God. In it, he says, our sanctification does not depend upon changing our work, but doing that for God's sake, which we commonly do for our own. The time of business does not differ from the time of prayer. You see, it's by recalling who we work for that we cultivate a consistent awareness of God's presence, even in the midst of our work. Hey, adore the Lord as you do the chore. When you know who it is you work for, it affects how you work. Notice Paul's words. With fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, not with eye service as men pleasers, doing the will of God from the heart. I mean, if we're working to bring glory to Jesus, we'll do our job with integrity and honesty and loyalty. We'll seek to serve the interests of our employer with no hidden agendas. Hey, if your job is to represent your company, it's wrong then to go behind its back and funnel business into side jobs for yourself. You're stealing from the company. If you see clients with the intention of later opening up your own business, that's dishonest. 
Are you pilfering pads and pencils, maybe furniture or computers? Do you take little perks that you're not really given? Are you padding your expense account with personal purchases? Are you being honest with your employer? Hey, God expects us to work with sincerity of heart as to Christ. Don't try to justify a lack of integrity with the rationale. Well, they just don't pay me enough. They owe me. As a Christian in the workplace, we represent Jesus. Never take what your employer doesn't agree to give. How many employees have discovered after the fact that the person that they hired, how many employers have discovered that the person that they hired and trusted was actually stabbing them in the back? It was employee sabotage. Reminds me of the Korean man who was a Christian. He was also the cook on a U.S. naval vessel. And the sailors on board, they were cruel. They were always playing pranks on this guy. One day they snuck into his cabin and they coated his toilet seat with Vaseline. When he came out of the bathroom, they all started laughing. They roared in laughter. The Korean fellow, he took it all in stride. All he said was, praise the Lord. On another occasion, they rigged the kitchen so that when he opened the door, a bucket of water would pour down on his head. Again, when it happened, he shrugged it off. Praise the Lord. Well, after several other stunts and the same response, these sailors grew convicted. They approached the man. They apologized. They promised to never do it again. But they did want to know how he could always manage to stay so cool. I mean, how did their cook endure such treatment and yet still maintain a joyful attitude? Well, before the cook answered, he wanted to be sure he understood all this correctly. He said, no more Vaseline on toilet seat? They said, no. No more water on head? Again, they said, no. That's when he said, okay, no more spitting in your soup. <laughs> you see, the point of the story is that it's possible for a person to hustle and to do a good job and to seem to have a good attitude and yet be working that job from the wrong motivation. How many of us harbor a grudge toward our boss? Oh, yes, we work hard. Because we want to show him up, or prove our point, or pass him over with a promotion. And yet under the surface, a sour attitude brews. Are you drawing a paycheck, but still spitting in the soup? Hey, if you were just working for the company, perhaps your attitude might be justified. But you need to realize you're working for more than an employer. You're working for Jesus. We should serve Christ with fear and sincerity of heart. This is why Paul says to serve not with eye service as men pleasers. Don't just work when the boss is in the house and then slack off when he leaves your area. We've all seen men pleasers in action. They work furiously at their terminal when the supervisor's in the room. But the moment he walks off, they go right back to their coffee and conversation and personal chores. They work only while they're being watched. They serve only when seen. They need an audience to do their job. It's called eye service as men pleasers. <laughs> when I played football and we had to do push-ups, I'd do them one way when the coach was looking. Body planked, arms moving on the count, nose pressing into the ground with every rep. I mean beautiful push-ups. 
But boy, once that coach turned his head, my stomach dropped. My head and arms barely moved. Now I was missing every other beat. I was a man pleaser doing only eye service. Some, goes, some folks go to work with only one concern, to see how little they can do all day and still somehow impress their boss. For a Christian, there's only one problem with this goal. Our boss is always watching. Reminds me of the company that posted a memo on the office bulletin board to all employees Due to increased competition and a desire to stay in business, we find it necessary to institute a new policy. We are asking that somewhere between starting and quitting time, and without infringing too much on the time usually devoted to lunch periods, coffee breaks, rest periods, storytelling, ticket selling, vacation planning, and the rehashing of yesterday's TV programs, that each employee endeavor to find some time that can be set aside and known as the work break. What a novel idea, the work break. I've read where the average American employee works in only 20 to 30% of his or her ability. And I wonder if that's not a liberal assessment. But what an opportunity for we as Christians to stand out and to be witnesses for Jesus. What would happen if tomorrow, when you went to work, you really did your job as unto Christ? What if God's light really shined through your labor? What if you did your job heartily, literally, from your heart? Did you hear of the college graduate who was asked, are you looking for work? He said, not necessarily, but I would like a job. A lot of people have the same problem. They want a job, they just don't want to work. I tell you, when I first became a Christian, I immediately tried to witness to my coworkers. A few of them shrugged. A couple of them nodded politely, but then they all ignored what I had to say. But one fellow, I'll never forget him, his name was Dave. And Dave told me the truth, the ugly, brutal truth. When I told him that I'd become a Christian, the first thing he did was double over in laughter. He pointed out how I was usually late getting to work. I took 30 minutes for my 15-minute breaks. And when I did work, I really wasn't doing my fair share. Dave ended the conversation by calling me a hypocrite, then snickering and walking off. <laughs> Needless to say, the Holy Spirit used Dave to get my attention. His words woke me up to the poor employee I'd been. And from that day forward, I went to work trying to straighten out my work habits and my attitude. My goal was to change Dave's opinion of me and earn his respect so that I could share with him the gospel one day. By the time I resigned... I think he saw me differently. And so let me ask you, if your co-worker's only exposure to the power of Jesus is how it motivates you in your work, what impression will they be left with? Will they see Christianity as an impotent, Sunday-only religion? Or as a vital, dynamic unleashing of God's power and joy that reaches into all facets of life? Here's another notice pinned to an office bulletin board. The management regrets that it has come to their attention that workers dying on the job are failing to fall down. This practice must stop as it's impossible to distinguish between death and the natural movement of staff. Any employee found dead in an upright position will be dropped from the payroll. 
When we work as to the Lord, when we work heartily, that means we work with zest and zeal and enthusiasm. You know, I've got a friend of mine, he's got a great job, and he does a good job, but you'd never know it by how he acts on the job. He's a grouch all day long. You're tempted to ask him if you can help, if you can help him get the rock out of his shoe. You know, if you want to be a witness at work, the first place to start, try a friendly smile. Be cordial. It's so refreshing to find some kindness in this dog-eat-dog curtness of the business world. It's been said, God puts work into our lives. Let's put God's life into our work. Be congenial and gracious on the job, and you'll stand out. People will pay attention. In World War II, the American Marines deployed in the South Pacific. They developed an expression called gung-ho. Today we use that word to describe a person with zeal and enthusiasm. The guy or gal who, you know, has some get up and go. The word gung is a Chinese word for work. Ho means harmony. And we as Christians need to bring a little gung-ho to the workplace. We can be pleasant. We can do our work happily and harmoniously. Well, we need to know for whom we work and how to work. But then thirdly, we need to know why we work. Notice Paul states in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. Always remember, your earthly boss may sign your paycheck, but your ultimate reward is from the Lord. You know, my heart breaks whenever I hear somebody say, oh, that salesman, he's supposed to be a Christian, but... That mechanic, he's involved in his church. But that guy advertises his business as a Christian company. But a lot of folks flaunt their Christianity to draw in business, but it holds them to a higher standard. Say you're a Christian, and I should expect more, not less. In the second century, one of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, penned a description of his fellow Christians in their witness our Lord urged us by patience and meekness to lead all from shame and the lusts of evil. And many have come in contact with us, were changed from violent characters, either from having watched the constancy of their Christian neighbors or from doing business with Christians. Wow, what a tremendous strategy. People were drawn to Jesus. Sinners were converted, not by our preaching but by our taking care of business in a way that glorified God. Imagine your customers, your vendors, even your creditors, coming to know Jesus by the conduct of Christians in the marketplace. This should be our goal. You know, I've talked to a lot of Christian businessmen, and some of them have been quick to remind me, oh yes, Pastor Sandy, our goal is to run our business according to biblical principles. But let's not forget now, the main point of business is to make some money. And what I'm saying to you this morning is they are wrong. That is not the main point of business. 10,000 years ago, from now, 10,000 years into the future, you'll look back on your business now and you'll realize its real purpose, the real purpose of your job, was not to make money. The reason you went to work every day and your company existed had nothing to do with money. The, peep, the point of it all was to influence people for Jesus. God wanted you as a witness 
in the workplace. 10,000 years from now, we'll have a different perspective. In the process, of course, you'll make some money. God will see to it. He's promised to provide our needs. God uses businesses to bless, but the making of money is not the point at all. God wants us to bring Him glory. The real reward for our labor is God's eternal approval of our faithful witness. Verse 8 promises us that in His time, God will reward whatever good that we do. Well, up until now, I've been speaking to the hired hands. But let's not forget that what's said to employees also applies to employers. If you run a business or if you supervise workers, you also need to remember the who and the how and the why. For whom do you work? How you should perform your job? And why do you work? Notice Ephesians 6 verse 9 speaks to the bosses. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In other words, if you're somebody's boss, remember you also have a boss. Every boss on earth has a boss in heaven. Nobody really works for themselves. Even the CEO, even the owner of the business has a boss named Jesus. Paul tells the employers to give up threatening. In other words, if you're the boss, don't be bossy. Don't try to intimidate or manipulate your employees. Motivate them with love and with appreciation. All bosses should be a servant to their servants. Every boss should recall that he or she has a boss. And while Jesus was on earth, our boss laid aside his royal robes and humbled himself and became a servant. Don't expect your employees to do more than you'd be willing to do yourself. Serve them with sincerity. Treat them with integrity. Care for them heartily. Do your employees have the honest impression that they're not just working for you, but with you? It's been said, better to have three men working with you than a dozen working for you. An employer can create that kind of atmosphere if he honestly serves his servants. Employers should care about their employees and their working conditions, not just to keep the government off their back or OSHA from inspecting or to pacify the union. No, all bosses are accountable to their boss in heaven. Paul says, with Jesus, there is no partiality. Thus, those who represent him should always be fair. He makes a similar comment in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair. It is true, a laborer owes his employer an honest day's work. But that boss also owes his worker an honest day's pay. There is a reciprocal responsibility, as in every relationship in the Christian life. You know, over the last few decades, the business experts have finally recognized what the Bible has taught all along. What's been biblical has always been successful. Biblical principles make for good business practices. Companies that are people-oriented, that share their profits with their employees, that provide good health care and benefits, that genuinely care for their employees' welfare, they end up with the most committed workforce. And that devotion translates into economic success. There's good wisdom here in Paul's instructions to the Ephesians. Well, I want to close with a story. In the 11th century, a king ruled Germany named Henry III. 
King Henry was a devout Christian who'd grown tired of life in the palace. He wanted to enroll in a monastery and serve God for the rest of his life in prayer and quiet meditation. When King Henry met with the super superior in charge of the monastery, <coughs> the priest asked him, he said, Your Majesty, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? And that will be hard since you've been a king. King Henry replied, I understand. For the rest of my life, I'll be obedient to you as Christ leads you. And that's when the wise old priest replied, Then I will tell you what to do. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place that God has placed you. You see, he knew that God can be served as much in the secular as in the sacred. It seems whenever a young man gets fired up for Jesus, he thinks he needs to turn his back on all his former pursuits and become a pastor. But I'm not so sure. When God called me to be a pastor, I fought it. Not because I wasn't willing to follow the Lord. I just figured the last thing the world needed was another pastor. Trust me, the world today has plenty of pastors. As I see it, the great need today is for Christian doctors and secretaries and accountants and lawyers and carpenters and programmers and teachers and policemen and coaches and executives, folks who will take Christ into the workplace, into the marketplace. Hey, since becoming a pastor, I now realize how limited pastors are in reaching people on a personal level. In daily conversation, when someone finally asks me what I do for a living, and I tell them I'm a pastor, that ruins the conversation. They clam up from that point on. They stop talking honestly and openly. They have a hard time relating to a pastor. That's why the people who win mechanics to Christ are usually the Christian mechanics who let their light shine in that arena. The folks who win architects to Christ are the Christian architects who are living out their faith. Without a doubt, the most pressing need in the world today is for Christians to do their work as to Christ. By doing so, we can attract people's attention and stir their interest through the excellence of our work. And then we can use that platform we've earned to lead thirsty hearts to the living water. Realize you can use everyday work to introduce folks to the eternal life and joy and love found only in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Old Johnny Paycheck used to sing, Take this job and shove it. I'm walking out the door. But as Christians, we can sing a different tune. How about these lyrics? Take this job and love it. I'm now working for the Lord. Let that be our challenge this morning. We can love our job if we learn to turn our work into worship.